The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when you find out your lover had a dream of running off to fuck a sailor they saw in a restaurant once? Would you file that away as a basic human instinct and move on with your life? Or would this tidbit of information set you off on a jealousy-fueled odyssey through the lusty New York streets? One so harrowing to your fragile ego that it would take not just one, but two dark nights of the soul to feel like a real man, who, by the way, is a doctor, again. Well, let's find out. Because today we are gazing at Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. So sit back, don a mask, and prepare to brush up on your occult philosophy as we open our eyes to this contemporary adaptation of a turn-of-the-century dream story. Brought to you by the longest consecutive film shoot in the history of film shoots, Ovid's Art of Seduction, the irony of occult illumination, the frolicking blasphemy of hellfire clubs, the doctor, Dr. Bill, who, by the way, is a doctor, and what Zarathustra spoke. And of course, the safe words today are the morning after. Anything to add, Benji? I do have something to add, but I need about 70 takes to get it right. Is that cool? Nothing you do is ever cool. Nothing. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. <laughs> Boy. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Ninja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. London! Yo, Benji. You are looking delightfully esoteric this episode. How are you? That might be because I read Thus Spake Zarathustra again for this episode, which I haven't done since I was like a freshman in a philosophy class. But... Oh, wow. Even more emo than normal. Great. Yeah, you guys think that I've reached that peak, but no, never. I need to cheer up. I'm going to read a little bit of Nietzsche before we start the episode. Yeah, I want to be in a good mood. Yeah, I am. <laughs> After that, Zarathustra is a fun read, but we'll get there. Okay. What did we watch for today, Benji? Today we watched the final film of the most overanalyzed filmmaker of all time, Eyes Wide Shut from 1999, directed by the one and the only Stanley Kubrick. This one's going to be a long one. Lightning summary for this film. We are going to have Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were married at the time, playing a married couple in what will end up being actually an adaptation of an old Austrian story from the turn of the century about a couple who... When the husband learns his wife has had fantasies about another man, gets extremely jealous and insecure about this, and goes on a dark night of the soul odyssey. Well, technically, it's like two nights. So <laughs> one night was not enough. He needs a couple dark nights of the soul to wander around New York, trying and failing to get laid himself, which is kind of an interesting, great choice that we will get into eventually find himself in a strange esoteric sex orgy 
and return home to his wife after these dark nights of the soul. So very strange little amazing film that was marketed initially in the 90s as an erotic thriller and actually turned out to be a very dark Nietzschean take on humanity and social hierarchies and institutions. So, yeah. Oh, and it takes place over Christmas. (laughs) Best Christmas film since Die Hard. I will fight for this. This actually might be my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. Oh, I'm going to throw that down and out there. Okay, all right. That's interesting, Yeah. yeah. But I guess we will get into why. So let's start with what is the best thing about this movie? So goddamn beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, best thing for me, the lighting. The lighting is so good. Mixed with what I am going to call the Stanley Kubrickness of this film. <laughs> this film is so purposefully interwoven together in very interesting ways, which is something that Stanley Kubrick is, of course, known for. So it's not a surprise per se. But in general, what Stanley Kubrick is known for is, as we mentioned on Heathers, because oh, yeah. Kubrick came up on Heathers <laughs> since the screenwriter for Heathers wanted Kubrick to direct it because he was known as the guy that would take a genre and then direct the genre defying not defining but defying epic within mm-hmm. the space of that genre so he picks something that is both a genre and then also he picks something that is defined by its institutional limitations within the world and he points out the restrictions that are brought upon people by embracing blindly embracing those institutions and In that way, Eyes Wide Shut falls right into that. It is a genre-defying counterpoint to the 90s erotic thrillers that were very popular in the decade. And it is also a film that is going to deconstruct and look at the institution of marriage and monogamy and jealousy. And it's going to show us how toxic and detrimental subscribing to those institutions can be so this is completely a kubrick film but yeah what's your worst thing worst thing about this movie is really not the movie's fault but more a reason that it's kind of difficult for me to weigh the stakes of this movie now like i said i love the look of this thing i love all the artistry on display but this is at its core a movie about marital infidelity and jealousy on one level at the very least. And that's a difficult thing for me to really invest myself in because I don't know if I've ever brought this up. I am polyamorous. Myself and my partner practice consensual non-monogamy. Jealousy isn't as big a thing in that world as it is if you're monogamous. Jealousy can come up, obviously, and you communicate that out with your partners when and if it does happen. But a partner saying to me, hey, hon, you know, last year I was kind of hot for this guy. My reaction is not to go on some strange escapade that Tom Cruise does in this film. Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah. My reaction is, invite him over for dinner. Fuck, let's watch the movies together. It's a good time. So I come at this from a very different point of view than the main characters do. And that's not a fault of the movie, but... For a polyamorous viewer, that can make elements of this movie downright laughable. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you there. Mm -hmm. So I see the societal deconstruction that's happening here. I understand the sexual ecology that's being broken down. And so it's more that I get a little sad thinking about how much jealousy 
generally is a factor in a lot of people's daily lives. Mm. And so it's a little bit bittersweet in a viewing experience, but it's not necessarily the worst thing about the film because that's the intention of the film. Yeah. It's just one of the things that are like, oh, this is a reflection of the world. That's sad. All right, so... So... This is a movie that has some background. I decided to take point on kind of the background of this film. A great book that I consulted for this is called Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the Making of His Final Film by Robert P. Kolker and Nathan Abrams. Very nice book. It's almost academic in how dense it is with information, and I was really enjoying that. And I also went ahead and read the book that this movie is based on. And some people seem to forget, yeah, this is based on a book. And actually, almost all of Stanley Kubrick's films were based on books in some way or another. In this case, the book is Trump Novel, or Dream Story, by Arthur Schnitzler, first published in 1926 in Austria. Now, you might ask, well, who is Arthur Schnitzler? Arthur Schnitzler was... A horny motherfucker. I'll say that. <laughs> Reading up on this guy, holy shit. This guy fucked. Go on. Born to a Jewish family, 1862, he was the son of a prominent doctor, which is interesting because Stanley Kubrick himself was Jewish and also the son of a prominent doctor. Very interesting. His work was very sexual in nature. To give you an example, a story like Death of the Bachelor short story about a group of men who receive a letter from their recently deceased friend written on his deathbed, explaining to them in intricate detail how he fucked all of their wives at some point or another. Respect. Yo. A very important play in Arthur Schnitzler's career was from 1897 called Reigen, or the French version was called La Ronde. It's kind of a circular thing. It's 10 scenes of different people having sex with each other. Each person from the last scene has sex with someone in the next scene, and then that person goes on. Just to give you an idea, scene one, the whore and the soldier. Scene two, the soldier and the parlor maid. Scene three, the parlor maid and the young gentleman. On and on and on until you get to scene 10, the count and the whore. So the whore is the connecting point. They usually are. Yes. This was the play that got Arthur Schnitzler labeled a pornographer. And it's important to note that as far as I can tell, Schnitzler's work wasn't really pornographic in the way the modern sense of the word. His work wasn't intricately describing genitals and how they were cramming and rubbing against each other or anything like that. Maybe a little bit here and there, but that wasn't the focus of his work. It was more about how sex complicates our lives and how it interacts with us. The other crazy things I saw about Schnitzler was that he kept a journal from the age of 17 to his death, totaling 8,000 pages detailing romantic and sexual relationships he had. And the other thing that this book detailed was every goddamn orgasm he ever had his entire life. He detailed every orgasm he ever had. Wait, detailed how, though? Was it scientific in nature? Like, it lasted 1.8 seconds and crested about 0.7 seconds in? Or was it a little bit more flowery than that? These journals are not available online, as near as I can tell. But my guess would be what you just said there. The other crazy thing, just to show you how famous Schnitzler was getting and just how much fucking stroke this guy had, pun kind of intended, a little bit. His fellow Austrian, Sigmund motherfucking Freud, once wrote to Schnitzler saying, 
I have gained the impression that you have learned through intuition everything that I have had to unearth by laborious work on other persons. In other words, Freud studied, Schnitzler fucked. That's who Schnitzler was. What's interesting about Traum Novell and where it falls in Schnitzler's career is that much like Eyes Wide Shut for Stanley Kubrick, it took decades to make happen. Schnitzler spent the better part of 30 years writing Traum Novell, and it's really interesting to think about that because Traum Novell is not a terribly long novel. It's actually more of a novella. It's about 100 pages in most book forms, 70 to 100 pages, depending on the book and the translation that you get. But it's a shorter piece. And that's very interesting in just a parallel to Stanley Kubrick's involvement with this book. So you might wonder, how did Stanley Kubrick come to know about Trom Novell? Well, there are many different stories on this that are some apocryphal, some wishy-washy on their credibility. But the one that I'm going to cite as true is this version of events. That in 1959, Stanley Kubrick was working on a little film called Spartacus. You've probably heard of it. It's the movie where at the very end, everyone declares that they are Spartacus. Roman gladiator epic, you know. People have heard of it. But famously, Stanley Kubrick did not have a very good time making this film. He was brought on after the producer and star of the film, Kirk Douglas, had fired the previous director, thinking he could control Kubrick because Kubrick was a young filmmaker at the time. Well, Kubrick, no matter what age he was, was no actor's bitch and was going to do what he wanted to do. And this led to a lot of arguments with Kirk Douglas, who decided to take Stanley to a therapist, as in the two of them went to see a psychiatrist to try and work out their differences. That's proactive. Yes. And Kirk Douglas, obviously, he had to get there in a hurry. So he went to these sessions without taking off the Spartacus outfit. I don't know that for a fact, but you can't disprove it, and that's my headcanon, so there. But it was at these sessions that the psychiatrist recommended that Kubrick read Schnitzler's novel, novella, sorry, Traum Novelle, which at the time was known as Rhapsody A Dream Stories in its current translations. Now, we don't know for absolutely sure that this is how things went down. This is the story from Kirk Douglas's autobiography. But what we do know is that while he was making Spartacus, Kubrick did invite author Schnitzler's grandson, Peter Schnitzler, to the set to talk about his grandfather's novella. And that may have got the ball rolling there on his interest in adapting the story. And yet, why was a dream story recommended by the therapist as something that would help Kirk Douglas and Stanley Kubrick's relationship? By all accounts from Kirk Douglas, it was not recommended under any therapeutic intent. Like the psychiatrist just liked Trump Novell, knew that Stanley Kubrick was a movie guy and said, oh, hey, by the way, Stan, you should make this a movie. Okay. So it was just like a side interest from the psychologist. That makes more sense than saying, hey, so I hear you guys have been having some trouble on set yeah. lately. Maybe you should read this <laughs> turn of the century Vienna novel about marital infidelity. Yeah. I think it would really help this situation. Basically, for the next few decades, Kubrick would have a project come along that interested him more. And so starting in the early 90s, he decided now was the time to get into Traum Novell. In 1994, he hired on novelist and Oscar-winning screenwriter Frederick Raphael to begin working adapting the novella. This begins a two-year collaboration lasting from mid-1994 to mid-to-late-1996 of Frederick Raphael trying to adapt Trom Novell to Kubrick's wishes. 
And really reading about the dynamic these two have, I sympathize with Raphael in a big way because apparently what was going on was that Raphael was given some parameters. Here's the novel, adapt it for modern time. Okay, great. He would try and take a pass, on, send the script to Kubrick in London. Kubrick would write back to him and say, no, that's bullshit. Stick with the novel. He would try something else, do it again, send it back to Kubrick. And Kubrick just kept saying, no, stick closer to the novel. It seems like Kubrick was using Raphael to basically figure out what Kubrick did not want to do. That's what Raphael was dealing with for the better part of two years. After all this time of this back and forth of trying to adapt this thing for the modern age, what results is, strangely, the most accurate literary adaptation that Stanley Kubrick, I think, ever did. Like I said at the top, a lot of his movies were based on books, but he would deviate from the novels fairly liberally. But with Trom Novell, aside from changing the time to modern day, the location from Vienna to modern day New York, and changing some characters' names, the entire book is in the movie, with one exception that is maybe two paragraphs long, I'll point out briefly later on. The entirety of Trum Novell is in Eyes Wide Shut. It is the most accurate plot beat by plot beat adaptation Stanley Kubrick ever did. There are going to be parts that get added to it at the beginning, and so mm-hmm. Benji will talk about those. Yes. And then, of course, the time period change. And one of the interviews that I found between the screenwriter and Kubrick mentioned an exchange that went something along the lines of initially when Kubrick gave the material to Raphael and said, I want this to be set in modern New York. And the screenwriter was like, um, I don't know about that. Haven't the relationships between men and women changed since <laughs> the 19th century? And Kubrick was like, have they? I don't think so. And then Raphael thinks about it and then concludes, no, they haven't. And then he <laughs> writes his screenplay set in modern New York. And that is something that is actually kind of fascinating to me. And it is true in some ways that a lot of the problems that are presented in Dream Story about the jealousy and expectations of matrimony and monogamy do translate to a contemporary world, that there hasn't been that much progress. Although, with the exception that when this movie came out in the 1990s, it came out at almost just the wrong time and had just the wrong kind of marketing because the 90s, especially in America, went through this little period of time where they thought that they were very sexually enlightened and liberated. We're talking about a decade in which Basic Instinct had come out a few years prior, where you had this idea of this liberated sexual woman who liked to fuck on cocaine and murder her lovers. And then you had things like Cruel Intentions and Wild Things, these adaptations, especially Cruel Intentions being an adaptation of an old novel, but then made with a more contemporary twist of sexual yeah, awakening. He could stick it anywhere he wanted to. That was big thing. That was big news. Yes, yeah, so it's like, hey, all the sex can happen. It's wild. Whoa, Buffy's down for anal. This is amazing. 
you had Clinton in the White House oh, going through like the impeachment of having sex with an intern. And so it seemed like sex and talking about sex was everywhere in the 90s. And a lot of the reviews that came out about this movie initially, Tom Cruise's character, Dr. Bill, was seen as nobody could possibly be that naive about sex. How does he not know that his wife has these fantasies? <laughs> because we're in the 90s now and we know all about sex. And it's only been then a couple of decades later that people are going back and looking at Eyes Wide Shut and being like, oh, our eyes were shut at the time too. We did not get the point that this was a movie about institutional jealousy and control and restriction. We just thought it was quaint that they were trying to make this film sexually erotic or titillating when, no, this film was not trying to make anything sexually erotic or titillating. Like, that was not the point of this movie. And that was lost on a lot of 90s audiences. So in a way, it was very contemporary relevant to the 90s, but people at the 90s did not all see the relevance, which is really interesting to me in hindsight. Now, like I said, the script was finalized in mid to late 1996. Got all of our actors together. They're going to film things over in England. We're ready to go. Principal photography is scheduled to last for three months. They begin November 4th, 1996, and finish June 17th, 1998. Now, math is definitely not my strong suit, but that doesn't sound like three months to me. So you might wonder, how the hell did three months turn into 19 months to film this goddamn movie? It's a Stanley Kubrick film. It's a Stanley Kubrick film. Now, what does that mean, it's a Stanley Kubrick film? Well, there are a few things to take into consideration here. Number one, the reason that Stanley Kubrick never got any flack from the higher-ups at Warner Brothers about the shooting schedule was that because he was filming this in England, it was much cheaper to film there. So the executives had complete faith in Stanley Kubrick to deliver on all of his promises and never you know, went in to say, hey, speed things the fuck up, man. We got to do this. Stanley Kubrick could do what Stanley wanted to do. When it came to the actual filming of things, it could take a little while to actually start filming the thing proper because Stanley Kubrick would do endless lighting tests for all of his sets, lighting the set at a different rate, using a certain film stock, taking the lights down, adding a different kind of shade to a light that was on a table and on and on and on until he felt that he had it exactly as he wanted to. So you did that. Then when it came time to actually film the scene, Stanley Kubrick went in without using storyboards. He decided that he wanted to discover these scenes as he began filming them. So when you did get the actors on set, you then had to spend a lot of time working out the shots that you were going to do for the scene as it played out. Then it came time to do the takes of the scenes. And the legends about Stanley Kubrick are very true. The man shot so many takes. There are many different reports of him filming as many as 70 takes for a simple bit of business like picking up a briefcase, walking through a door. So Stanley just filmed over and over again, making sure that whatever they were going to use, they had the right version of it. Now, on top of that, there were actors in this movie originally cast that filmed their scenes and then figured, okay, that's it. I'm done doing it. And I'll point out these actors as we come to their scenes. They left. Stanley decided, uh, we need to reshoot some of this because this wasn't quite as I wanted it to be, or we want to do shots from this angle. And those actors were just not available to do those reshoots, which meant the scenes had to be refilmed all over again, going through all of those steps I just mentioned, which could delay things for months on end. They finally wrap 
June 17th, 1998. They do the editing. That goes as meticulously as Stanley Kubrick liked things to go. On March 2nd, 1999, Stanley Kubrick mailed a work print of the film to the executives at Warner Brothers in New York City. Executives there, Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, watched the film, and they were elated by it. They were calling Stanley and saying, you fucking did it, you master, this is great. The print did need a few sound fixes and things like that, but besides that, the edit was what Kubrick wanted to make. That's March 2nd. On March 7th, five days later, Stanley Kubrick passed away in his sleep of a massive heart attack. And we'll get into conspiracy theories about this movie if we want to, but there are some very ugly ones out there about how Stanley Kubrick unveiled something in the making of this thing that higher-ups didn't like and they had him killed. If you know anything about Stanley Kubrick's life and his work ethic and how he took care of himself, it's a fucking wonder he made it to the age that he was. He was never going to the doctor. He was a smoker. He was self-medicating. He was working 18-hour days, seven days a week for months on end. After he passed away, post-production of the film was overseen by Leon Vitale, who really was the best guy for the job. Leon Vitale was a very longtime assistant and confidant of Kubrick, knew what the guy wanted inside and out. And then finally, after all of that, from this starting journey in 1959 of going to therapy sessions with Kirk Douglas in his costume, yes, I will believe that was what it was, all the way to July 16th, 1999, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut is finally released for the viewing public to see. So that is the background of how Stanley Kubrick's final film came to be and... I agree, it's debatable what would the final product have been had he been around for the entire post-production process, but I think Leon Vitale did as good a job as he could to finalize the version of the film that we have with us now. Yeah, there was a lot of talk when this film came out because of its abrupt seeming ending that, oh, Stanley Kubrick died before he was able to complete the film, and so they just had to make up an end or tack one on. No, this was the yeah. finalized work print, more or less. And so let's get into the film to really see why it is that there are conspiracies that surround it, why there's so much mysticism and esoteric feel to what's going on here. Because there is a lot of that in here, but maybe not in the places that people think there is initially right. or in the ways that people think there is initially well we start and the first thing this film wants us to know is that nicole kidman she's got an ass kind of yeah just this movie wants to make that clear because it opens with just the scene of nicole kidman walking into a room pretty pillars and you know tennis rackets laying about and she just takes off her dress yeah so it's a very interesting voyeuristic shot of nicole kidman from the start but we get the title sequence, which mm -hmm. is just simple white letters on a black screen, and time period appropriate for the novella, Waltz yeah. is filtering in. So we're already setting up this very 1920s Austrian feel, and then a very voyeuristic view of clicking on from the dark screen to a very warm interior lit room. Nicole Kidman is standing with her back to us in the center of this frame, very, very tall, long figure in a black dress that's slipping down to just get this voyeuristic shot of her body. Mm -hmm. It's a very 
cool way to open with this concept that is going to carry on throughout, that the women's bodies in this are very much objects of aesthetic decadence and pleasure and commodification. This title sequence is interesting in that it says Warner Brothers presents Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, in a Stanley Kubrick film, then cut to Nicole Kidman undressing, and then the title, Eyes Wide Shut. I won't dwell on the editing too much in this movie, even though, trust me, oh, I could fucking dwell on the editing. But I just find that opening sequence of images and words fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool because of the black screen to the warm room to the black screen. Mm -hmm. It's very much like eyes blinking open and shut on our voyeuristic shot of this woman who is undressing. So we're already getting the title invocation even through the editing and what we're viewing. So they are listening to this waltz music. We do find out very quickly that it is a diegetic choice because Tom Cruise goes over and turns off the waltz once they have gotten ready. So we get this idea that the higher social class still listens to the same music as they did in 1920s Vienna, uh, yes. which is pretty fun. They are getting ready for a party. Their opening lines are very telling because Tom Cruise sa- or Bill says, have you seen my wallet? The first thing we hear Alice say is, do I look pretty? It's fascinating that she asks, do I look good? And he just says, yeah, yeah, you look fine. Doesn't look at her whatsoever. She even points it out. She's like, you haven't even looked at me. So he has to turn and really take her in. Like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're hot. It is a great dress. That black dress. She's looking good. And they walk through what I consider a gigantic apartment. This place looks huge, but apparently an edict that Stanley Kubrick had on his production crew was that he did not want their apartment to look too big because he wanted more of a disparity between these New York kind of yuppies and the billionaires they're going to be hanging out with later on. And maybe it's just the way this movie is shot, you know, because of those cool tracking shots that Stanley Kubrick was famous for. This apartment looks fucking huge to me, so I don't know. It's a nice apartment. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I guess it's not the old Vanderbilt-style mansions that we're going to go to later, but it is big. It's one floor, I suppose, is what makes it restricted compared to Ziegler's place, which is a giant, looming, inherited mansion. Speaking of a Vanderbilt-style mansion that we'll go to later, let's go to that Vanderbilt-style mansion where the our couple is heading off to. What's interesting about this entire party scene is that while I said that this is a very accurate adaptation of Trom Novell, this sequence is not in Trom Novell in Dream Story. There is a reference to the couple, Friedelin and Albertine, going to a ball, but we do not actually see that action in the book. The movie decided to expand upon it, and we meet Victor Ziegler, who is apparently the one who invited Bill to this party. He's some rich guy, and his character is one of the very few inventions in the script that Frederick Raphael came up with that Stanley Kubrick said, okay, yeah, yeah, this guy makes sense. Let's keep him in this thing. And this is a character in the movie is played by Sidney Pollack in the original version or when it was first being filmed, this was played by Harvey Keitel. And apparently Keitel was not having a good time on this thing from day one because he didn't like how long it took to film his scenes. And when it came time to do reshoots, apparently Keitel just said, yeah, fuck it. I've got other things to do. I gotta go. 
and they replace him with a director, Sidney Pollack. I think it's fascinating that Sidney Pollack in this movie is very much Bill's superior, and Sidney Pollack, as a director, has directed Tom Cruise much earlier in the firm, uh, earlier in the 90s. So I like it kind of works on a nice meta level when you get there. Now, like I said, this whole ball is not in the novel. However, in 1930, there is a script that Schnitzler himself wrote for a possible adaptation by the Austrian filmmaker G.W. Papst, and there was going to be an opening ball sequence at the start of that. The movie, unfortunately, never happened. It's not clear if Kubrick had access to the script, given how meticulous that guy was in research. Maybe, but we don't really know for sure. However, speaking of prior attempts to make a movie out of Tromnovel, there are prior movies made out of Tromnovel. Yeah, there are. <laughs> Two main ones that I could find. There was an Austrian made-for-television version that's only 70 minutes long, and it is just a very straightforward adaptation of the novel, or of the novella. It's the dialogue, the monologues, they're just straight from the book. A lot of the prose of the novel is turned into voiceover for our main character, and it's pretty much just, it's very straightforward. It's on, all on YouTube with subtitles if you want to find it. There was a 1989 made-for-Italian television version called, and my apologies to our Italian listeners, called Ad Un Paso Dal Aurora, uh, which translates as One Step from the Dawn, was also released as Nightmare in Venice. There are no subtitles to this. The version of it I could find from what I can tell this is like the titillating version people thought they were going to get of Eyes Wide Shut because it's it's softcore porn cinemaxy stuff going on in this thing. Go find that if you want to. No subtitles, but if you speak Italian, you're going to have a good old sleazy time. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Yes. At any rate, they meet Ziegler, who is a billionaire who, who has invited the couple there, and they begin dancing. They don't know anyone. Bill sees an old friend of his playing the piano, and Alice says, okay, yeah, you go talk to him. I need to get to the bar. I mean, the bathroom. She's going to go to the bar, because Alice, Alice is on a mission to get slammed at this thing. Yeah, so we're setting up some interesting class things, but a micro version of class stuff, because everyone is pretty high class. Mm -hmm. But within this world, Dr. Bill, he's on the lower rung that has been invited to this party. He only knows the piano player, who he knows from med school, because Dr. Bill, he's a doctor. He's Ziegler's doctor, but he's also just a doctor. And I'm gonna say that a bunch of times, because Dr. Bill, he's gonna say that a bunch of times. Maybe there is one out there, I haven't actually looked, but I really want a supercut of every time Dr. Bill is like, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm going to yeah, check. You know what they say about doctors. <laughs> if that doesn't... Okay, Amazing. I'll make a... I never like to promise you things, London, because that implies that I respect you in some way, but I'm going to make this promise to you uh, that if there is not already a YouTube supercut of Tom Cruise saying, I'm a doctor over and over again, folks, we're going to make our YouTube debut with the supercut. Yes, the doctor supercut. Oh, the doctor supercut. It super just cut. needs to be done. I was cracking up by just midway through the movie because he often also pulls out his doctor badge like he's in the FBI. Like, are you like, he'll a just cop? show it to what? people. <laughs> he'll just open his wallet and be like, it's okay, I'm a doctor. Okay, I'm a... I'm like, what do you think that means, man? Even in times where 
it doesn't really seem like that's relevant in any way. Right? It's amazing. It is absolutely hey, amazing. Hey, I'm looking for a friend, Nick Nightingale. Uh, oh, I haven't seen it. Well, I'm a doctor. It's okay. I'm a doctor. Good so for you, you I guess. Uh, there is this association, I guess, with doctors and a certain intelligence and status and wealth, maybe even more so in 1920s Vienna than in 1990s Manhattan. But at the same time, there is that idea of like, oh, he's a doctor. So he's playing off of that hard. It's yeah. what he's got to work with. So yeah. he's going to go off and talk to his friend. Meanwhile, Alice. Like I said, Alice was on a mission to get a good buzz going on. But she's happened to have done this in the near company of a man who... Oh, I, I need to talk about this guy. This is my favorite dude. Oh, actually, he's my second favorite dude. First of all, the crossfade that happens when we cut to Alice mm -hmm. is outstanding. It's just another one of those examples of the editing in this, where we have Bill going off in one direction, and there's a very slow crossfade as it transitions to where Alice is. And for a second, they're standing next to each other oh, in the yeah. frame, looking in opposite directions, even though they're not any longer in the same position in the room. It's very, very cool. It's very subtle. But yes, then she's drinking this champagne flute by the bar. She sets it on top of the counter. We get a very daring shot in some ways of directly her back again. We get a lot of shots of her back as she's leaning against mm -hmm. the bar. And this gentleman sidles up. He picks up the glass. She notices and turns to him and goes, Oh, I, I think that's my glass. And him, debonair that he is. Oh, I'm absolutely certain of it. <laughs> Oh like, shit, this well, guy has some game. Like what? And then what as have if we that's here? not enough, he lifts the glass to his own lips and drinks the rest of her champagne. <laughs> that's an asshole move, but I respect it. <laughs> this guy's game is going to be so not subtle that it almost becomes subtle again. It almost just flips Cycles all the way back, back around, around, huh? Because he's so obvious, and yet it's kind of suave because he's being so clearly obvious and just not at all self-conscious in what he's doing. Yeah. He wants to know if she's read things. Yeah, he'll introduce himself, and he's like, I'm Sander Sovest. I'm Hungarian. Oh, he's Hungarian. Okay. Yeah. I was confused if he was Hungarian. I was thinking, oh, I really hope this guy points out if he's Hungarian. He is Hungarian. Okay. Cool. Well, Alice finds it weird, too, because she's like, I'm Alice. I'm American. <laughs> she's like, what do, you, what do you want from me exactly? But what he wants to know is, have you ever read the poet Ovid on the art of love? I mean, who hasn't? Yeah, who hasn't? Bitch, please. <laughs> I actually have translated Ovid's The Art of Love. No big deal. Just Jesus throwing that Christ. out there. Fucking yeah, so I would have been all about this. This is already working on me because I spent my undergrad <laughs> as a classical linguist. I was like, yes, I'm listening. So I'm going to talk to you about Ovid's Art of Love. Contextualize the statements. I do nothing with my classical linguist degree, so let's talk about Ovid. Now... One of the things that Ovid does talk about in The Art of Love is the importance of showing that you're willing to exchange bodily fluids, which this guy has just done right uh, here by yeah. drinking her champagne. So mm. he's already taken a little hint out of Ovid's playbook. Mm. But what is Ovid's playbook? Well, The Art of Love, the Ars Amatoria, it's three books. The first two are written addressed to male audiences. Theoretically male audiences, but really anybody who wants to seduce a woman. Mm. 
Ovid forgot about us ladies that might want to do that too, but it's okay. We're not really thinking much about the female desires quite yet at that point in history. Yeah, well, Ovid is starting to. All right, Ovid, he's ahead of his game, this guy. Yeah, All no, right. Ovid was really ahead of his game. Actually, The Art of Love, it's a very contemporary read, which is one of the things that's amazing about Ovid. But yes, his first two books are directed towards men slash people who want to find and pick up and seduce women. So the first book is all about where to find them and how to seduce them. The second book is how to keep them and or how to make sure others stop stealing them from you. And then the third book that's written two years later after the first two are like, hey, ladies, I'm going to give you advice on how to win and keep the love of a man. So this is a trilogy altogether that shows everybody how to seduce each other. It's largely satirical in nature, but it also has some universal truths in it at the same time. It's a very odd, fun read in some ways. Well, I mean, the prince was meant to satire, but how many people take that thing seriously? Go figure. Yeah, I know that. I just call that my autobiography in the making. Oh, for fuck. Oh, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. We'll talk about ego and narcissism here in a bit, too. Now... These three books, they're divided into parts, mm -hmm. and many of these parts are themes throughout this movie, so more on that later. But two of the themes that are applicable here are the chapters in the woman's book, in the third book, on being wary of false lovers and trying young and older lovers. So that seems to be what's happening with this older gentleman that she's dancing with. He may or may not be a false lover. She has to use her Ovid wits to try to deduce that. And she might want to try him out, you know, because she should be playing the, the old and young field. Another thing that this Hungarian mentions is, hey, I have a little trivia fact for you. Do you know why women ever get married or used to get married back in the olden times? She's like, no. And he's like, once upon a time, they would get married so they could lose their virginities and then be able to go off and have sex with the men they really wanted. You're like, whoa. Bleak seduction tactic. Ah, that's... So what's the game here? Is he saying you're married so you've lost your virginity? <laughs> so, so now you can have all the sex with the men you really want. Willy-nilly, like you know. Let's go upstairs, sweetheart. So it does seem to set up this idea that once upon a time, historically and still today in contemporary Manhattan in 1999, women are being set up as these objects, these housewives, these trophies that are exchanged in some sort of contractual deal, often for their own sake, for money and social status and some sort of settlement, as it were, where they can be safe in their position in society, even though the men that they marry might not be the ones that they lust after. It's a bleak take, I suppose, on the position of the woman in society, but it's not an entirely untrue one. It's not a universally true one, but it's also not entirely untrue, especially in the upper class society in which she lives. We do get a sense throughout this that Nicole Kidman's character, Alice, is very much a object, housewife, trophy, all of her scenes are her getting dressed or undressed, showing her body in certain ways, her grooming her body. There's a lot of hair brushing and putting on deodorant and putting on lingerie, wrapping gifts. Like she stays in the house a lot. Outside of this one scene, she's almost always in the house, just preparing her body in some way. And she seems very dissatisfied with that and very resentful of that. So she does kind of connect to this line here, this trivia fact of sorts. It also is acknowledging something that she really wants her husband to acknowledge, which we'll get a sense of later, that 
this dude understands that women have interior fantasies outside of their husbands, that they might have lusts and attractions outside of their husbands, which is something that we'll find that Bill, Dr. Bill, because he's a doctor, he doesn't necessarily understand that that's the case, but we will get to that. So this is our art of love lover who's trying to set up the premise that Ovid, he's going to play a part in this narrative. And I'm going to point out throughout where Ovid comes up. This guy, he's listening and he is, he's engaging her. He mentions, the, he asks, do you do anything? And she says, oh, I worked for an art gallery and it's closed now. And he's like, oh, well, I have a friend in the art game. Perhaps I could put in a good word. Oh, you know someone in the art. Well, that's convenient. Thank you. Yeah, she was the curator of an art gallery that's closed now because it went broke. And his response is, oh, well, I know people in the art world, so maybe I can get you a new job. I'm like, well, obviously, the only reason you would say that is legitimately because you want to have sex with this woman. Did you not just hear what she said? She managed this art gallery and it went broke. Like, that's not a solid <laughs> resume for like, oh, well, let me give you another art gallery to manage then. Like, no. So, yeah, everything here is an exchange. Mm -hmm. We're going to get that set up right from the beginning, that it's an art gallery position for possible attention. And then we cut over to Bill, who's talking to two women because... One of them remembers him because he was nice to her once by giving her a handkerchief during her modeling. And so now she wants to show him a good time. So yeah. everything here is being positioned as, you did this for me, so now I could possibly do this for you. Very cool and subtle way of building that in. An analysis of this movie I really enjoy is just showing how unheroic Tom Cruise is throughout this entire film. To give you an idea of how unheroic he is. This story about the handkerchief is really about the most heroic thing his character is going to be associated with doing the entire time. I do love like the breakdowns of just how emasculated this Bill Harper guy is throughout the movie. It's, it's a fascinating uh, deep dive. Yeah, Tom Cruise's character has no game, and it's amazing. But yeah, old Bill, he's, he's chatting with some models, and they're into doctors. And they want to show him a damn good time. And they want to take him somewhere. Ladies, where exactly are we going? Exactly. <laughs> where the rainbow ends. Where the rainbow ends. Don't you want to go where the rainbow ends? Well, now that depends where that is. Well, let's find out. Well, spoiler, yeah. they don't go where the rainbow ends, unfortunately, because he gets called away. But that's the scene that's coming up here. What's interesting is that the book does mention when Friedolin and Albertine are discussing the ball, Albertine teases Friedolin a little bit and says, oh, well, you were busy with those two red dominoes, or in the original German, die zwei roten domino. These gals, they're determined to take him where the rainbow ends. Yeah, so we'll put a pin in those red dominoes and we'll talk about this rainbow. There are actually multiple interpretations to this whole end of the rainbow thing because there are a lot of fan and audience theories about this film. I certainly am not going to claim to be the one who knows all of the answers, like capital T, capital A. So I'm going to overview some of the options. And then when we get towards the end, we're going to come back to the one that I think is actually the strongest or the most interesting. Okay. But I think all of these actually filter in. I don't think there's just one answer. But some of the things that have been proposed or exist 
is that the rainbow is the world which we're mostly given in this movie. Because one of the things that I will only mention primarily the once, otherwise it'll just be every scene that I'll be <laughs> bringing it up and gushing over oh it, is that the lighting in this movie, holy shit, yeah. it is so excellent. Like I said, it's my best thing about this movie. Mostly going to be lit by Christmas lights. So one of the primary reasons this is set at Christmas, even though Christmas is barely mentioned yeah. in some ways, was so that they could use this very interesting type of motivated lighting of just like Christmas. And so in the background, there's all of these different rainbow lights. And a lot of the different scenes are going to transition between patches of blue and patches of pink and greens and yellows like the rainbow is here it is present and it is on screen it's a softer lighting as well than a lot of the neon noir movies that we get now where everything's very sharp and permeating so it's not a color palette like Nicholas Winning Refn, which is also glorious in its oh, own yeah. right. But this is a very soft turn of the century Vienna kind of feel that is lush and backlit. So a film with so much just backlighting the entire time <laughs> with very little front lighting mm -hmm. because they're just letting the Christmas lights take over the back and just softly spill over into the front to sculpt our actors' faces. So that's not a completely silhouetted backlight, but the characters we get on screen are very lowly lit. Like the whole space is really what shines here. So a lot of people point out that Bill is basically walking through a rainbow world throughout most of this, with the exception, the one place that is void of Christmas lights are going to be the orgy sex cult related scenes that we will get into later, which mm -hmm. is very stark and white lighting for the most part. So perhaps where the rainbow ends is actually that sex party. And what these girls want to do right here is bring him to that sex party. So maybe if he had followed these women, he would have gotten in there honest <laughs> in terms of having to sneak in later. Like maybe these girls are like, hey, you were nice to me and I am going to this party later where I'm going to be a commodified sex object and I'd like you to come with me. That is option number one that's happening here. If you're going to come by an orgy, come by honestly. That's you know, Yeah. Just well, we will be talking about that orgy because whether or not it's like a sex trafficking situation or just a bunch of fun kinksters. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's actually kind of open. We have some possibilities. We don't know their lives. The genius of Kubrick is that he gives you so many details and then at the same time gives you room to dream. Yeah, exactly. Dream story. What up? <laughs> Another option. This is where the conspiracy theories oh, are really strong shit. and come in because there's a lot of conspiracy that surrounds this movie that it has all of this Illuminati and secret society messaging and conditioning in it. We will <laughs> Illuminati, also get to that that's later. Not a, London, London, that's not a, a real thing. Shut up. Shut up. I will give a lecture on the Illuminati later and why it's super ironic that people are all about the Illuminati being a very concealed group. But get us! Oh, <laughs> fuck, man. They're tracing me with those $100 bills! Okay, so um, the MK Ultraness of the Rainbow. As we mentioned on Beyond the Black Rainbow, Remember an that? organization through the CIA in the US during the Cold War called MK Ultra, or is a program of the CIA's. And they did a lot of crazy shit. You want to hear more about MKUltra? Go listen to that episode because don't have time here. But one of the things that they used as a code phrase a lot in their declassified documents was this concept of going over the rainbow. That was a phrasing that they used a lot in the concept of we can break somebody down and we can rebuild them. We can send them over the rainbow. So a lot of the conspiracy theorists link 
this phrasing of like, let's go, you know, to the rainbow's end or where the rainbow ends is sort of past the societal conditioning and or it's indicative of the idea that these women have also already been conditioned by an MK Ultra style of brainwashing and are part of the cult. There's also a whole bunch of kundalini and chakra stuff. This idea that in kundalini that you're awakening the serpent from the lowest chakra, climbing up the ladders of the rainbow chakra, and that when you are fully actualized, you are where the rainbow ends because you have awakened all of your rainbow chakra points. Often this is done in contemporary interpretations through sex. So maybe they're just saying, let's have some kundalini sex. Hmm. So that's another option. Then the Nietzsche option. This is the one that we are going to really sum up at the end. But Nietzsche had a little quote in his prologue to Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I will show them the rainbow and the stairway to the Superman. And this is a claim that fictitious Zarathustra is going to make about the path of the man's journey to becoming something greater. And part of that is going through the rainbow to reach its end. And since that is only best explained once we get through this entire goddamn film, we're going to put a pin in that. But option number four is that it is deliberately a Nietzsche Zarathustra giant pin at the end of that rainbow. Oh, it's going to be giant. I'm going to break down why this whole movie is really just bringing in some Nietzsche. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. And (laughs) Bill, however, does not get to experience this rainbow because he's pulled away to go help Ziegler out because Ziegler, he, he's had someone, you know, something happened. Oh my God! You killed a hooker. Call girls. No, she was Cyril. A when they're dead, they're just hookers. Okay, so he didn't actually kill a hooker, but a sex worker has overdosed. Also, that's not from this movie. For those of you who do not know Archer, that is an Archer reference that <laughs> we quote a surprising amount, considering we haven't killed many hookers. Many? Proceed. Uh, uh, Occult mysteries. uh, Anyway, Bill has to go in there and and work his doctor magic, which really, when you watch what he does, doesn't seem that medically complicated. No, not at all. A naked woman is laying on this couch, and she's just clearly breathing, but is immobile. And Bill just looks at her and says, hello? Hey, move your head if you can hear me. Can you move your head? Okay. Great. Cut away to the Hungarian and Alice cut back and the woman is okay. You know, she's covered up now and is cognizant of what's happening around here. And they're just, oh, you were, you were lucky. You almost overdosed on a speedball, young lady. Don't do that. I mean, if I was going to pick a bathroom to die in, though, it would be this one. Because this goddamn bathroom is fucking gorgeous. It is, except for the curtains. Of course you focus on the curtains. Uh, Well, it was hard not to because (laughs) they're not quite the right color for the room and they're bunched up at the top of this window. I'm like, you take those down, you would get cleaner lines, you'd get in that natural light in the morning. Like, what are we doing? I just really wanted to rip those curtains down. I also took issue with the giant ring that this woman has on her finger, which is clearly a giant pearl that she uses to store her blow in, but that is not neither here nor there. It's still just Uh, a disrupting aesthetic. But this scene is very, very important because we do have a red-headed woman that is lying semi-unconscious on a red velvet couch. 
and this is going to be contrasted with the painting that is above her that is also gorgeous and decadent and has a woman that is sort of in the same position, only the woman in the painting is conscious and awake mm-hmm. and looks very vibrant. But we do have this setup of sumptuous nudity and decadence that is pulling from the Vienna time period. An interesting thing I discovered about Kubrick's films while researching all of this is that bathrooms show up more often in Kubrick's films than bedrooms do. Oh, yeah. Kubrick really liked filming in bathrooms. In fact, this isn't even the first time we've seen a nude woman in a green bathroom in a Kubrick film. The Shining did the exact same thing. Not the exact same story, obviously, but that happens a lot. The movie opens in a bathroom. There are many scenes in Full Metal Jacket that take place in bathrooms, very important ones. Kubrick really liked to film in bathrooms, and appropriately so, because they are just inherent places of vulnerability. So it makes perfect sense to set scenes like this in bathrooms and all the way throughout the movie, in fact. But the look of this bathroom and the look of this party in general is inspired by something I found very fascinating. The name I kept coming across a lot when researching this film and the look of Ziegler's party was Gustav Klimt. Wait, you weren't familiar with Gustav Klimt? I was upset that I had never heard of Gustav Klimt. Oh man, yeah, he's great. Yeah, I think when I saw that name and looked up, I'm like, well, some of this looks familiar, but let me uncover more of this. And Gustav Klimt was an Austrian painter who lived during the same time as Arthur Schnitzler, so they may have been very well aware of one another's work, which I find delightful. But his golden face paintings were fascinating because he was painting both with oil paints, but also literal golden leaf that he would very carefully lay down on his canvases. And he was making large portraits doing this and landscapes too that were gorgeous and became these beautiful, almost mosaics of golds and reds and blues and green, just glorious, shiny luster and color in these things. And when you look at those side by side, and I will definitely put some of that on Instagram, uh, side by side with this party, it does look like Ziegler's party is a Gustav Klimt, like golden phase painting come to life. And it's fantastic to see. Yeah, as does the painting on the bathroom. And this painting actually was painted by Stanley Kubrick's wife for the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. It's called Paula Six Months on Red. So the woman in the photo is pregnant, apparently. But yeah, it really looks like it's drawing from some Klimt, Egon Schiel, Vienna time period inspirations. Really talented paintings. Very cool. And much like Arthur Schnitzler, Gustav Klimt was himself labeled a pornographer in his day. And a painting that he did called Nudas Veritas carried this very stylized quote that translates as, if you cannot please everyone with your deeds and art, please only a few. To please many is bad. Yeah, you do you, Gustav. You're very cool. You know what's fun about that quote as well? What's that? It comes from the philosophy of Nietzsche in The Spoke. You don't Zarathustra. say! I do say he was actually quite an influence on both him and Aleister Crowley, who wow. I'll talk about later. But yeah, that's one of the sum-ups of Zarathustra, actually. The herd is bad. Mm-hmm. Just reach the one. Yeah, I dig it. Alice, meanwhile, has finally definitively turned down the Hungarian's charms after he has invited her to go upstairs to see the bronze sculptures. Yeah, he's like, why can't we hook up? And she's like, because I'm married. I'm married. Flashes that ring. Hard cut to naked Nicole Kidman in front of the mirror. 
and we start to hear the song that was featured very prominently in the marketing for this film, Baby Did a Bad Bad Thing by Chris Isaac. It's a very appropriate song in all of its all of its verbiage for this film, especially the elements of dreaming and closing your eyes. Because, goddamn, Baby did do a bad, bad thing, didn't she? Did yeah. she, though? Like, nobody's done anything bad <laughs> at the moment yet. But she thinks she has. That's the thing. She's looking herself in the mirror and thinking, oh, I think I did a bad, bad thing. Did I? I don't know. I can't tell. I feel like crying. As Alice looks at herself through the looking glass. Huh? Huh? Think about it, won't you? Thank you. Good night. This quote-unquote sexual scene here is very interesting because you can kind of tell that these are two people who have been married for a very long time Mm -hmm. because there's no chemistry here. (laughs) There's no (laughs) tension. It's just they're going through some motions. And that's supposed to be intentionally in this scene, that it's two people that are just going through some motions. She's not even paying attention to him. Mm -hmm. She's looking at herself, and she's very distracted. It's very interesting. The next day, they're hanging out in their really nice Central West apartment, and Dr. Bill is wearing Uggs. This That's really important to point out. <laughs> That's true. And he's wearing Uggs in like 1996 when this is filming. Yeah. He's ahead of the curve, right. Dr. Bill, yeah. sitting there in his Uggs. But yeah, he just has one foot propped up on the coffee table, and I was like, holy shit, he's wearing Uggs. Amazing. Neither here nor there, but still really important to me. Well, they're winding down for the night. Nicole, or Alice, she goes to the bathroom, gets the band-aids that Dr. Feelgood prescribed, because in that band-aid box, oh, it's not just band-aids. It's the good green, baby. Rolls a joint and they get high. And I love the idea that Bill is just high for the entire night, because that introduces a fascinating way of looking at all of this. They are now in their bedroom. The glorious red and blue colors are now starting to come into the palette in a really big way. I mean, that's something, that's another thing, like, we could just say over and over again, so much red and blue. Anytime we have nighttime windows, they got some glorious blue light that's kind of on the unnatural side. But again, this is a very dreamlike movie, so it does work. And often set dressings will be very deep, lush reds to counteract with that. Yeah. So first they're talking, and he's like, oh, okay, who are you dancing with? She's like, oh, this man. He's like, what did he want? He wanted to fuck me. He's like, oh, that's understandable. This is a perfectly awesome reaction, actually, where he's like, oh, that's understandable. And then she's high, and so she gives like this face that actually I do really love the face she gives, where she's like, what? (laughs) And then she gets up, and she's like, that's understandable? He's like, uh, yeah, I mean, you're a very attractive woman. She's like, wait, so the only reason a man would want to talk to me is because he wants to fuck me? Is that what you're saying? And I'm just sitting there going, well, that's what you just said. You're the one who just said that he wanted to fuck you. Like, you brought that up. But she's getting all paranoid and crazy. She's starting to lose it a little bit because she's getting really combative. He's like, okay, that's not what I meant. It's just, you know, you know how men are. They <laughs> often want to fuck people, but talk to you. She's like, so you wanted to fuck those two models? Like, no, no, see, I'm the exception. She's like, what makes you the exception? He's like, well, because I'm in love with you and we're married and I wouldn't do that to you. Once again, 
all good points. And so her mind goes immediately to she's pissed again because the only reason he's not having sex with these people are out of consideration for her. It's like, that's not exactly what he just said. He just said because he's in love with you. Maybe that means he doesn't need anybody else or he's just not that interested right now. Maybe fulfill all the sexual needs. Doubtful, but you know, maybe that's what's going on. I don't know his interior space, but he's being perfectly reasonable. Like, I actually said out loud, I'm like, maybe she should not smoke pot because she's getting a little crazy. And then Tom Cruise's next line is, Alice, I think the pot is making you a little aggressive. And I was like, yeah, you and me, buddy, we, we understand each other. I mean, to me, that just seemed like a really weak deflection because, yeah, weed, it's just known for making people aggressive. I know. I mean, right? she was really aggressive. Like, the way that she's going, I'm like, mm-hmm. either she's aggressive all the time and crazy all the time, or it's the pot. These are the only two conclusions because. Yeah, I can tell that she has a lot of interior stuff that's bottled up in her, and this is Mm -hmm. giving her a little bit more of an inebriated, relaxed state to maybe release some stuff. It's coming to the top. It's no longer bottled down or stuffed down. You could say that the weed has removed the inhibition that was keeping this rage down for who knows how long. Yeah, aka the pot is making her aggressive because she is not discussing this in an open communication healthy way. She's just getting really combative and mad at him about stuff that he's not actually talking about right now, right? Like his responses up to a point are actually perfectly rational and understandable. The way that she's responding is not in direct response to what he's saying. It's to some other conversation she wants to be having. So we follow him up until he has this moment where he kind of loses most people, where he's like, well, women just don't think like that. She's like, well, what if I wanted to fuck him? He's like, I... I trust you, right? I don't think you'd ever cheat on me. And she's like, why not? Well, because you're my wife and we have a child. She's like, oh, you're that sure of yourself? And he's like, no, I'm that sure of you. Once again, (laughs) excellent line. Super excellent line. And very rational. That's, That's chill. But that's when she starts laughing hysterically because turns out she's thought about cheating on him before. And this surprises him because he doesn't think women think about these interior fantasies. Because she'll ask, like, well, you're a doctor, Dr. Bill, because, you know, he's a doctor. You touch women's tits all day. What do you think they think about? What if they want to fuck you? Once again, who cares what they think, like, one way or the other? Like, if somebody else is attracted to him, that's not on him. So whatever. But she's freaking out about it. Idea that somebody else might want him. And he's like, well, no, women just don't think like that. And that's when she delivers the, if you men only knew. Because women, they can have some crazy, dirty, fucked up fantasies. Yes. Yes, they can. And she tells one that's actually pretty tame. She's like, okay, do you remember that time that we were at dinner in Cape Cod and there were those sailors? No. He's like, no. I don't remember that at all. (laughs) Not a very important moment to me. Did not memory bank that one. She's like, no, you don't remember that? Well, there was this Navy guy, and he was super, super hot, and I saw him checking in, and we never had a conversation. We never had an interaction, but I was so attracted to him that in that moment, I fantasized just fucking his brains out, and even if it meant I had to give up everything, give up you, give up our child, give up the life that we have built together, I would throw it all away for just one night. You're like, whoa. One, you would give up your child? (laughs) That's when we should maybe, like, say, wait, wait a second. I think this pot is making you a little aggressive. God damn. But it is that understandable kind of moment of overwhelming lust where, like, in the moment, it probably did feel like that. If she took a moment to breathe and think about it, would she have actually gone through with it? 
Who knows? I don't know. I don't know her impulse control. The pot is making her aggressive, London. Did you not get that? Yeah, I was like, this woman should not do pot again. Like, I would not (laughs) continue to be with this woman if she continued to smoke. I won't spend much time talking about book versus movie. But what's interesting is that this is the first scene of the book, is the two people, Fridolin and Albertine, sitting down and just kind of reflecting on the last summer. And Albertine says, oh, yes, do you recall there was a, a Danish sailor who was at our place? And what's interesting in the book is that Fridolin does remember the Danish sailor. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that really good looking guy. What about him? Oh, well, I was really hot for him. What's different in the book is that Fridolin says, well... You know, hon, if we're being honest, I was actually really hot for this young gal who was hanging out by our vacation home, too. Uh, I never really told you about that. And when you compare this scene to the book, the book is comically cordial with Friedelin and Albertine, where they're having a light discussion, both in book and in the Austrian made-for-TV movie. They are just casually sharing this with each other. And at the end, they just say, you know, we should probably be more open with each other in the future and tell each other these things. Yeah, yeah, we really should. I'm glad we had this talk. It's very different. It's like the the one thing about the book that is so drastically different than what the movie does, which I found fascinating. If the book does not have any feelings of jealousy that arise from their initial conversation, how does that onset the rest of the novella? It kind of crops up a little bit more as it goes along. That's something that's more slowly revealed through the prose of the novella and in his interactions. It's really more tipped off because of what happens to Fridolin next, which is the same thing that happens to Bill, where he goes to see the daughter of a patient who has recently passed away and complications arise from seeing this grief-stricken woman. That kind of triggers something in Fridolin that may have been brewing longer than he really realized. It's not something that's brought up in the opening scene of the book. Well, it seems like it makes sense that that change would be made because, one, if that's the opening of the book, Mm -hmm. then there's a little bit more time for that to slowly bubble. So it sounds like either way, this conversation did result in a seed of jealousy being planted. Mm -hmm. In the novella, it takes a little while to open up. But here in the movie, we're already a good third of the way in, maybe. And so to Mm -hmm. just plant a slowly percolating seed of jealousy, we already did that with the opening scene of him flirting with the models and her dancing with the Hungarian, right? That's kind of more of a... It's a slow build, and then we get here, and we have this genesis of jealousy out in the open to spark the thing. Kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings, where in the book version of Lord of the Rings, Frodo, (laughs) he gets that damn ring, and he hangs out in the Shire for a couple more years before he has to do anything. It takes a good third of the novel for him to even be like, maybe I should leave the Shire now with this ring. Whereas in cinematic time, like you need that shit to happen a lot quicker or else your audience just is not going to care. So it does make sense that it's like, no, either way, this is the function of this conversation is to spark jealousy, which actually gets into... Ovid's The Art of Love. It's coming back. Oh, thank God. I I was missing our our dear friend Ovid. I'm glad we're getting back to him. So in the Ars Amatoria, Ovid likens love to military service, which I bring up because here she is actually expressing her fantasy over a military service man, a Navy man. And why it's like military service is that love supposedly requires the strictest obedience to the woman. And 
he advises, Ovid advises women to make their lovers artificially jealous so that they do not become neglectful through complacency. Mm. So here we have Alice, who has just danced with a Hungarian man, who has been using his techniques of the art of love to seduce her, and they've been working, right? She was kind of a little into it. And he also asked, like, have you read this book? And the way that she responds, it seems like, yes, she is familiar with Ovid's art of love. So perhaps this jump-started an idea in her mind of, okay, perhaps I should also try to play Ovid's art of love game, try a few things out. And hey, in book three, it does tell me one of the ways to test if my husband's still on board and not just completely complacent, fallen into this rut of complacency, is to try to make him artificially jealous, which does seem to be what she's trying to do at the beginning when she says, so this Hungarian I was dancing with, he wanted to fuck me. And her husband did not respond in the way she wanted with some spicy jealousy mm-hmm. of saying, oh no, like, that, that gets me going because I'm possessive and I want you. Once again, like for those of us who are hedonists and or polyamorous, this is the proper response. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's understandable. Glad you had fun. But she wants that jealousy. She wants that passion mm-hmm. as a display that he's into her. And he doesn't give her that. He gives her the complacence response, which then jumpstarts this entire kind of reaction she has of like, you're not playing by the Ovid rules and goes into like her little guilt response. It was in our vows that you would play by the Ovid rules. Come on, man. So she tries to incite artificial jealousy, but what she ends up doing when he doesn't show to reciprocate that in kind is to really go for the jealousy jugular. It's just like, okay, well, then I'll really make you jealous. And the dark night of the soul begins. So it does. We don't have time to process this jealousy deluge that gets unleashed here because Dr. Bill... He's got to go be a doctor, because I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Bill, he's a doctor. Whoa, Dr. Bill's a doctor? I know, surprise. Badass, all right, well, good for him. Yeah, he heads over to this other apartment, which in real life was just the Harper's apartment redressed, believe it or not, just a little production note for you there, and sees that, yes, a longtime patient of his is passed away. It's very sad. He talks with the daughter a little bit, and she's obviously very teary-eyed. It's a difficult thing to process. And she starts making out with Bill. Just just hopping on that action. Just goddamn cannot turn down that that Dr. Bill. Because he's a doctor. I don't know if we talked about that, but But Dr. Bill, he doesn't reciprocate it. He kind of pushes her away for a second. He's like, hey, <laughs> I think you're trying to grief bang me. She's like, no though, I love you. I know that I'm engaged to be married to this other dude, and I just told you about how we're thinking about moving and getting a house together and starting a life, but here's the thing. I would give up everything to just be near you. And this is very similar for him to the story that he just heard coming from his wife. He suddenly is the Navy sailor that this woman would give up everything, her life that she is building with this other person, for just one fuck with Dr. Bill. And his response is great because having this contextualized for him recently, he's like, we don't even know each other. We haven't even had a conversation that isn't about your dying father once. So I don't think I'm the person that you think I am, or I don't know what you think is going to come from this. So he shuts her down and she has this moment to realize Okay, that was an awkward interaction. I did not see that going that way. 
But yeah, I'm wondering if things would have been a little different. Would he have hooked up with her if he had not just heard that story about women who will throw everything away for a moment? And that being a sort of trigger point for him at the moment. It's just like, oh, man, my damn wife's stories are just a total buzzkill for me. Otherwise, I would totally, you know, hit it, get it on with this grieving woman. I mean, she's a gorgeous, you know, this gorgeous blonde woman. She's played by, I believe her name is Marie Richardson. She's a Swedish uh, actress. Very great. Was not the original person to play this role. Much like Harvey Keitel originally played Victor Ziegler to be replaced by Sidney Pollack, this woman, Marion, was originally played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Hmm. And she filmed her scenes. It's all good. And then months later, Kubrick decides, you know, there are a few shots that I I didn't quite get exactly the way I wanted to. So we need to reshoot just a few scenes from this. Well, by this point, Jennifer Jason Lee was busy on a little movie that London, you and I know and love. David Cronenberg's Existence. Yes, death to the <laughs> demoness Allegra Geller. So she could not come back and refilm these few shots that Kubrick wanted to get just right because she had a whole goddamn movie to be in. So he decides, well, got to reshoot the entire thing then. So I don't know if Tom Cruise looks extra tired in this scene. That might be why. Fair enough. It works for the scene. Yeah. And now very upset at all of these things. Tom Cruise. It's like goddamn women. Goddamn women. They're all the same. They all just will throw it all away for some sort of scandalous lust. Bill decides, I need to go for a walk, man. I need to walk the streets. Greenwich Village. The lusty, lusty streets. People are making out in the corners. He's walking by sex shops. It's a world full of sexual objectification and commodification, and he's not a part of it. Now, one of the big stories that came out about this film before its release was that even though this movie takes place entirely in New York and for the most part in Greenwich Village, none of it was shot there. All of the New York street scenes were a giant set on the back lots of Pinewood Studios. And because of that, what's fascinating is that he had complete control over all of the signage that you see in it. So there are nice subtle references to Leon Vitali. There's a place called Vitali's after his assistant. And Vitali is also a cast member of the movie. Uh, a place called Emilio's, which is a reference to Emilio de Alessandro, who is his personal driver for many years. There are shops that Kubrick deliberately inserted, not because that they were real places in Greenwich Village, but they were just places he kind of remembered because he lived in New York when he was a kid and hadn't been to New York in decades. So he was really recreating a dreamlike version of the city from his point of view. And so there were shops like a Kanishiri in Greenwich Village, which as far as I could see from my research never existed, but to Kubrick it did, which I found fascinating. But this led to a lot of critics pointing out how fake all of the street scenes seem to look. Which is crazy to me because I am a New Yorker and this looks like Greenwich. Like I did know going in the second time, like when Mm -hmm. I sat down to watch this movie for this cast, I had read a lot about the set production and setup and how Kubrick actually had some of his assistants fly to New York and measure the streets of Greenwich to get the exact width and how wide the sidewalks should be. So in some ways, he really, down to fine details, replicated certain things. So the things that he did not replicate, he did so on purpose. 
So I just figured that he was changing it up for reasons. If you look towards the back, so some of the back sets do look a little bit more like sets just because they're a little too flat yeah. and the paint is a little too bright. So I can see the setness of it in the background, but in the foreground, the ground is wet there's dirt and grime like the city looks old and lived in they did an absolutely gorgeous job of reconstructing the set so even if it looks like a dreamscape set version of greenwich i don't really understand why that's a problem <laughs> that's what movies do is they build sets yeah and that kind of brings up an interesting point about the critical reaction to this film because this film wasn't horribly panned by the critics but those who had negative reviews on it a very interesting theme kept popping up in reviews for this film because the people who didn't like the film would say stuff like, well, the New York set looks fake because they knew going in, it was fake. When you probably first saw this film, you weren't really thinking about that. So you weren't really concentrating on the aspect of it, watching it multiple times. Yeah. You probably noticed a few mm -hmm. details. You're like, Oh, okay. I see where the set is there, but that was on everybody's mind when they went in to see this thing, as was all of the hype behind the film about, hey, this is going to be the sexy film where Nicole and Tom are going to be fucking on camera, man. It's going to be great because that's what was being promised in the marketing for this thing. And none of the critics who came out against this film really seemed to be willing to engage with the film on its own. There was always baggage they were bringing into it, and that affected their review of it very negatively. Oh, the, the set looks fake, or, oh, Tom and Nicole aren't nude enough in this film, or there's not enough sex in this movie. What the fuck is that all about? Not at all taking in what the film had to say on its own, but rather just not meeting some preconceived expectations that critics were going to have for this thing. Yeah, I guess New Yorkers tend to take New York way too seriously <laughs> so maybe that had a factor in too but it makes me respect the sets more in this that they mm -hmm. recreated something that looks a lot like greenwich that i yeah. yeah had no problem with so that's incredible to build a set yeah the beautiful thing about recreating the set is that they were able to sneak in little easter eggs that hint at what's going on and kind of really add to the fact that like what if this is what if this whole movie is a dream? Because there are weird references to what's going on with Bill. There's a story called Nipped in the Bud. There's a giant neon sign that says Eros at one point right above him. Nice. So there are these weird, weird little bits there. Now, as he's, have we, have we covered everything about the New York as we now journey into the his set, Yeah, we'll talk about Eros later. Okay, but all right. In terms of the stuff that he encounters within this set. So he's walking the lusty streets. There's going to be some misplaced homophobia that comes out of seemingly nowhere. Really? So he's yeah. walking down the street and this group of men start berating him on being a gay man in the city, which is curious because he's not in this. And there's nothing about him that would suggest that there's yeah. I guess it's the 90s and he's wearing a pea coat and a scarf and somehow these bros from the bar, that's enough for them, I guess. But so some of the reads on this, because this can be a confusing moment for a lot of people because mm -hmm. it does seem very aggressive and out of nowhere. There are readings on this in terms of his emasculating vibe that he generally is facing right now that he doesn't feel like the man that he should be because his wife is dreaming of fucking sailors or whatever. 
There's also this idea of misplaced sexual desire and assumptions that strangers are looking at other bodies and people and just making assumptions about their sexual role in the universe, which is going to be kind of a common theme. But the thing that I actually came across as to why this was here in the first place was there were some interviews that talked about how, first of all, it was it's Tom Cruise's character initially that is Jewish, right, in the novella. In the novella, it's not outright stated, but Arthur Schnitzler himself was Jewish and oddly didn't write too many overtly Jewish characters or characters that identified as Jewish. But you can infer based on what the character is doing that, yes, he is Jewish. This uh, To kind of get into what the book is doing, in the book, he's walking along the streets. Friedelin is walking along the streets of Vienna. Some college-age boys walk by him. But in a very different kind of action than from what's in the movie, none of them really do anything except for one guy who just elbows Friedelin, keeps walking, then turns and just looks at him. Friedelin thinks, I should probably challenge this kid. I should probably do something. But he doesn't and just keeps walking along. And it's not something that's explored in the novella itself, but there are a lot of reads on that that Friedelin is definitely Jewish because a very harsh reality for Austrian Jews at the time was that they couldn't challenge someone who may have been aggressive to them in a violent way. Now, this does not carry over into the movie, strangely, because Stanley Kubrick constantly told writer Frederick Raphael, himself Jewish, to not include any references to Bill being Jewish at all. A really crazy line that comes to their correspondence is that Kubrick says, I want him to come off like a Harrison Ford goy, as in someone who is reads as non-Jewish as possible, which is a very ironic request because Harrison Ford is Jewish. <laughs> Go figure. But that's something very curious that Stanley Kubrick, a Jewish director, did not at all want any element of Judaism to sneak into this film or the characters in it, even though this interaction with these college boys attacking our main character in this strange way and him unable to reciprocate the violence or stand up for himself is coming from a place of Jewish oppression and anti-Semitism from Arthur Schnitzler's time. Yeah, and the problem there with trying to translate this into misplaced homophobia, that's a fail because those are not the same things. Like the anti-Semitism that Jewish people were facing in 1920s Austria slash Germany is not the same thing as a cisgendered straight white dude in Manhattan getting homophobic slurs thrown at him when he's not gay. Like, not the same thing Mm -hmm. at all. I'd be seeing a little bit more what they were doing there if this was a gay character that Mm -hmm. was physically and violently threatened because of who they were in an oppressive society in which violence was imminent for gay men in the 90s in Manhattan. But this dude is not gay. He is straight within the narrative of this film. And so it is not the same thing. So overall, that was a failure of adaptation there. But that's what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Domino the prostitute, though. Uh, She knows what's up. Because he walks away from there. And perhaps because he's just been rattled. He's just had his straight masculinity questioned by a bunch of beer bros. He's a little bit more receptive to this prostitute that comes out dressed amazingly in this crazy fur coat and this really tall fur hat 
She's like, how about you come inside and I'll show you what it means to be a man who cruises for sex workers in Greenwich Village. Because trust me, I used to hang out with virgins in Salem. I know what a real man is. That is her. Yeah, this is Vanessa Shaw from Hocus Pocus. Yes. All right. (laughs) Now, headcanon is the same character. Exactly. Yes. Clearly, her real name diegetically within the movie is not actually Domino. No. Because Domino, it means something else. Domino, it can mean many things. I was a little curious. What was Kubrick doing here? Kubrick was deliberate on so many things. I wondered, okay, why Domino? That's an interesting name. It could refer to the playing piece, or it could refer to a thing that sets off a chain reaction, a domino effect. It could refer to shitty pizza. Which, you know, bad pizza, it's like bad sex. End of the day, you still had pizza. Uh, not a bad time. Convenient delivered to your door. Yeah, Or exactly. her door, as the case might be in this But instance. I think the much more likely reason that she's called Domino is that Domino can refer to a Domino mask, which are the masks worn at masquerade balls. So Domino masks were one of the many styles of Venetian masks One of the more popular styles, actually, it's the half face mask, so just around the eyes. It is also a role within a masquerade, so sometimes you dress in a domino costume. And there's this reduction that happens when you put on the domino mask of identity to a trope. They are one of the players of the ball. So when we mentioned earlier that the two models that took our Dr. Bill's elbow to lead him to where the rainbow ends. Yeah, those novella refers to them as the red dominoes. Yes, so they as well were already perhaps part of the conspiracy. The conspiracy of the masquerade and the performance had already begun. But yes, we are going to go to a place later with a lot of Venetian masks and people who are performing in that manner. So she seems like she might be set up to also be one of them here or one of the players in this long dark night of the soul that's Mm. happening. That's all a performance in his space. So, yeah. But she brings him inside to her her house because she's like, the way that I serve clients is by bringing them directly into my place. It's convenient. I'm standing right out front of it. So good for her. He goes in and he's really quite taken aback and disgusted by how the pores live. He's looking around. It's actually a really cool little apartment, but he's like, oh, God, there's dirty dishes in the sink. And she even says, yeah, sorry, it's the maid's day off, you know, makes a joke. And (laughs) he does not look like he thinks that's funny. He's like, this is disturbing me greatly. Your bathtub is right next to your sink. Side note. I have been to many, an apartment in New York where that actually happens. Yeah. The bathtub is right next to the sink because that's where your plumbing is. This is the most believable New York apartment I think I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> this is yeah, pretty spot on. So that shit does happen. I do dig that there's this random gold shoe that's <laughs> sitting on top of their wrapped Christmas presents. It's just randomly there. Ah. It's just one lone shoe. I enjoy it. It's almost in a way, a little bit of a Cinderella motif, that there's one lone metallic shiny slipper because it's gold in this one. In the Disney version of Cinderella, it's glass, but in the actual French fairy tale, it's a silver shoe. So we're playing with a metallic missing one single shoe. And there's a reason why Pretty Woman is a Cinderella narrative because this idea of somebody of the lower classes, perhaps 
finding and marrying their prince and getting raised up in the, the social classes. It does seem like there's weirdly something there. And Dr. Bill, he's not a prince, but he is a doctor. He's a doctor? He is. He's, Whoa, a, he's a doctor. And no I think shit. he shares that with her as well, because later her roommate is also going to be like, oh, the Bill, Dr. Bill. So he does reveal to her, I'm a doctor. He goes in and she's like, what do you want to do? He's like, I suppose we should talk about money. She's like, yeah, that'd be great. What do you want to do? <laughs> He's like, well, what do you recommend? She's like, what do I recommend? Well, I, I don't want to put it into words exactly. I'm like, why not? This is your job. Like, <laughs> why would you not be comfortable vocalizing? You, uh, what you, you knew what this? What, uh, how, how long have you been doing this, Domino? Yeah, so there's a question there. But... They do have these amazing pink and blue lights that are behind them oh, and yeah. framed. It's amazing. Christmas, gorgeous, gorgeous lighting. Fun things about this woman's room. There's a lot of personality in this room. There's a lot of chosen art. She's got a lot of books. She's got some stuffed animals. So this is definitely her own personal space. She has more of an interior going on than we're ever going to learn about. But one of those strange interior details is that her top row of books on her bookshelf are all books on sociology, <laughs> including this, like, introducing sociology. It has a pretty prominent yeah. focus in the frame at one point. Like, even if you're not looking for the books, you can't not see that bold whites on black cover introducing sociology. Apparently, in earlier versions of the script, Frederick Raphael had written that she talks about how she's studying sociology and goes into a lot of detail on that. And I think Kubrick's like, dude, he's there to fuck her. Come on, God, fucking move it along. Or, I don't know. Yeah, this chick, this hooker knows how the world works, right? It's all commodity and exchange, and she understands social structure and strata. And sociology just in general is a theme of this movie. So it makes perfect sense to have that in there, even ignoring this the prior versions of the script where that was going to be more of a thing. Yeah. I think just having the book there is a nice like little reminder, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that the Domino is uh, getting into that. She also has a stuffed tiger on her bed. Oh, does she? That's really important. I will bring that up later because right. this is another Kubrick thing, but it's not just there. It is there for a Kubrick reason. It's just curious that she's got this stuffed tiger on the bed and it sticks out. So remember that tiger. His wife calls, he gets distracted. She's like, that your wife? He's like, yeah. She's like, do you have to go or can you stay? He's like, nah, I got to bounce. Because once again, like, this is my dark night of the soul. I'm trying to maybe put my dick in something, but I just don't have it in me. And so he still pays her, though, and he kind of gets off on it. She's like, you don't have to do that. He's like, I do, though, because this is actually my satisfaction kind of mental orgasm because I get off on paying people to do shit because that's my role within this sociological arrangement of commodification. I pay for shit. About the only thing that Bill seems to be able to do is throw some money around. So if he can throw money at the thing, he's going to be doing it. And we'll have questions on how much money Bill has in his wallet later on because it seems like he's got a lot of cash on him. It's amazing. I love how much cash this asshole carries around. <laughs> Bill heads out, having decided, you know what? Yeah, I'm not going to bang a hooker tonight. Oh, my God. You killed a hooker. Call girls. No, she was a, Cyril. A call... When they're dead, they're just hookers. And I just like that clip, so I'm going to keep playing that. <laughs> it also contextualizes why we're going to keep using the word hooker, even though 
really big on sex workers rights and sex worker as a term but like hooker's just so much fun to say it really is a great term he heads into the sonata jazz club where earlier in the movie at the nice party where he met his old medical school friend nick nick said hey if i don't see you again come down to the sonata jazz club that's where i'm playing and they just happen to finish playing as bill walks in nick reveals that he's got a gig after this one but it's a little mysterious Yeah, it's totally mysterious. He also reveals that he has a wife and kids at home back in Seattle. So he is a married man, but he goes where the work is, Yeah, that he travels around. And at first you're thinking, okay, how much money could you really be paid to travel out to New York to play at a jazz club? Hmm? But no, that's not his real income. His real income is traveling around with this mysterious caller who calls and gives him the password, Fidelio. And Dr. Bill is like, what is this Fidelio business? And Nick explains, okay, well, here's the deal. I kind of play piano blindfolded for this mysterious group of people that pay me a lot of money to show up, give a password, play some creepy backwards Gregorian chant shit, and then I get to go home. And or also like fuck the waitress next door, because that's also a thing that we'll get to in a bit. Dr. Bill's like, hey, look, I'm on a dark night of the soul. So I would really appreciate you tell me this address. I already have the password. I really want to get up to some freaky shit tonight because I didn't have it in me to hook up with a hooker. And I didn't have it in me to grief bang the daughter of my dead patient. So I'm thinking maybe this mysterious sexual cult might help get me there. Not going to, but whatever. Nick's like, okay, here's the thing, though, is that even if I gave you the address, nothing would come of it because you're not dressed appropriately because you need a tux (laughs) and you need a cape and you need a mask. He's like, whoa, I don't know what shit I'm getting into, but now I'm definitely interested. Now, a few quick things to unpack about all of this is that one in the novel, interestingly, the password turns out to be Denmark, which freaks out Fridolin because it's like, what? Denmark? What? Because his wife wanted to fuck a Dane. And a lot of people have said, like, this might be a hint that there's more of the the dream element is a lot stronger than we're really thinking that it is. Fidelio, as Nick says, is the name of a Beethoven opera. That's not just a Beethoven opera. It's the only opera by uh, that good old wibbly wobbly man, that audibly god old Ludwig von. I was trying to speak Nadsat there, but I was fucking it up. But it is Ludwig van Beethoven's only opera that he spent the better part of nine years working on. Another man who spent so many goddamn years trying to perfect one thing. But it's also known as Lenore or the Triumph of Marital Love. The story is of Lenore, a woman who disguises herself as a man named Fidelio to attempt to free her wrongly imprisoned husband from an evil duke. Hijinks ensue. Eventually, the lovers are reunited and everyone is freed. Though Fidelio... I mean, that's the name of the opera. Latin lover over here, London, who yeah. knows Latin. Is Fidelio a word in Latin at all? Or? Yes, well, it derives from the Latin mm-hmm. um, fideler fides, which is faith, trust, honesty, faithfulness. Huh. Yeah, it also has a root verb of I trust or I, <laughs> you know, have faith. So in the way that you mentioned that Denmark as a word in -hmm. the novella indicates the dreamlike status because it's like wait i was just obsessing over danes in denmark and now it's the password Mm -hmm. he's out there questioning the faithfulness of his wife and the trust he has in his marriage and the trust she can have in him right now and then he's slapped in the face with the password is fidelio 
So it's a nice little double service thing yeah. because it's going to have that faithful vibe. But this Beethoven opera is actually going to have some details that do fit a little bit, a lot uh, closer oh. with where he's about to go. But we will revisit that once we get there. Oh, fuck yeah, we will. But he yeah. does need a costume and he's got to go somewhere. He's got to go over the rainbow to rainbow fashions. So he goes under the rainbow, really. He walks under the stairs of this big rainbow sign of rainbow fashion. So he's not at the end. Bribes his way in there. He uses that doctor's clout, rings up the guy who comes down. It's like in his robe, like, what do you want? What did the light owl do you want? Well, uh, I need a costume. Uh, I'm a doctor. Uh, see my doctor's badge right there. Got that. He whips out that wallet. It's okay. I'm a doctor. He holds it up to the door. It's like, once again, what do you think that's going to help? This is where eagle-eyed viewers might notice there's a red neon sign right behind Bill that says Eros on it right before he walks into this costume shop. Yeah, Eros is back because one thing we haven't really mentioned, we did mention Freud being kind of jealous of the dream story author's sexual prowess and all of the things that he <laughs> came by natural that Freud had to study. But one of the things that Freud studied and then proposed were these borrowed Greek terms of Eros and Thanatos. Freud initially had this whole concept of the pleasure principle, and that people sought out pleasure as the reason to living. And he, at some point early on in his career, contrasted that with the idea of the ego, that it was a constant struggle between sex and the ego. And then he realized, wait, like, narcissists are a thing. And so that's not an either or, that's actually both. And so narcissist unraveled his entire theory, because that's what we do. So he's like, okay, there's got to be something else that's contrasting this drive for Eros. So he came up with Thanatos. So the pleasure principle versus the death wish. So Eros are all of the things for Freud that is seeking out that pleasure, the sex, the creation, the love. Thanatos is the death and the destruction. Yeah, of half the universe. I saw the movie. Yeah, that's Thanos. This is Thanatos, the Greek word for death. These two things, they cannot live without the other, Freud would claim, that Eros needs something to push against. And we do get that sense throughout this movie. So again, I'm not saying Freud was right in his theories, but Freud's theories did influence a lot of art and filmmaking. And so we do have in this film a lot of that Eros-Thanatos duality, where wherever Dr. Bill goes in this pursuit of Eros, in this pursuit of love and fulfillment and the reason to live and create and be alive, there's going to be this looming tension with death and destruction simultaneously. And so we're still on that build. Kind of Dark Knight of the Soul number one is really that pursuit of Eros, and Dark Knight of the Soul part two is really going to be encountering the Thanatos reaction to his Eros knight. So... We will revisit the Thanatos, but that's really what we're setting up here, is that we're in the Eros stage of the night. He's still on that high. He's pursuing that pleasure. And where he's pursuing that pleasure is to this costume shop, where a delightful Russian dude, best, best actor in the entire film, <laughs> he's just bringing it, shows up and is like, okay, Dr. Bill, if you pay me 200 over the rental price for the costume, I will let you in at midnight to get a goddamn cape. Also, there's some Lolita shit going down. Yeah, he's got a daughter, Lily Sabowski, in her, one of her very first roles. She was 14. 
14. She's hooking up with some businessmen in the basement, and her father flips out about it initially. And we'll, we'll talk about them later. But Bill, now he is caped up, he's masked up, he's driving out somewhere to Long Island, thinking about his wife and the sailor. Uh, we haven't mentioned it, but there are these multiple vignettes throughout the movie in this weird sepia blue tone where he imagines his wife getting it on with some sailor. Again, he doesn't remember who this guy is. So the image that we see is just whatever he thinks the sailor must have looked like. Yeah. And for a while, it's just this kind of faceless dude in a sailor suit. Yeah. He eventually gets more and more naked, but he's like, yeah, what would that sailor have done with my wife? I mean, look, Bill, cuckoldry is a thing. It's a very healthy fetish that a lot of people have. You might want to look into it. I'm just saying. Yeah, just embrace it. Channel that, my man. But no, Dark Knight of the Soul instead. So he arrives at this mansion, which is actually the exterior is one of the Rothschilds mansions Mm -hmm. that is beautiful it's big it's interesting that he chose the rothschild property and so rothschilds for those who are not familiar were for centuries the most wealthy family in the existence of wealthy families they had a lot of money they started out as bankers in the 1700s and they're not as much of a private wealth institution any longer, but that's only been in the last couple of decades as the fortunes kind of gotten split up among descendants. But Mm. they are a Jewish family in origin, and because they were so rich and powerful for a very long time, there are a lot of conspiracy theories that Mm. surround the Rothschilds. A lot of them mostly because of anti-Semitic attitudes. So I'm not even going to share those conspiracy theories because I don't support conspiracy born from anti-semitism right but it is curious and worth pointing out that he did choose this mansion of a very well-known social elite wealthy family that has rumored ties to a lot of conspiracies across the board but in this film diegetically they don't mention the rothschilds they call this the somerset property in long island and dr bill Pulls out his wallet again, because that's what he does. He pays the cab driver <laughs> 80 bucks and then pulls out an extra 100 and does the most elitist asshole thing where in front of this cab driver, he rips the $100 bill in half and says, if you will wait for me, if you will loiter here with my stuff, you can have, you can hold on to half of this $100 bill and I'll give you the other half when I get back. It's like, asshole. Did you not have two 50s? Come on. Yeah, well, it's just like, it's this weird power move, right? Yeah. That he's clearly getting off on again, where like, I can just rip up $100 and it's no big thing to me. But this is actually more than your cab fare even was. So this is more than you make in driving out to the middle of Long Island. And yeah, Ugh. it's an amazing douchebag move, especially since, let's see like how much cash this asshole has apparently been carrying around with him so he paid domino 150 in cash possibly more because he seems like the kind of dude to probably just like give her two 100s or whatever i have money because i'm a doctor i don't know if i mentioned that but just saying yeah he he has the money and then he pays this other dude 200 more to like get into the costume place then about two to three hundred for the costume itself or the deposit $80 in cab fare plus this extra 100. 
Good God. So this amazing motherfucker carries around at least like 800 to, and I'm assuming he didn't just tear up his last 100 bucks. So this guy is walking around with like a grand of cash on him at all times because he was not planning this Dark Knight of the Soul. He just went out to make a house call for his dying patient, and then he just keeps going. I'll probably need to carry $1,000 in late 90s money on me just in case. Yeah, and I just love the idea that this asshole just walks around with like a grand of cash on him at all times just in case, because it makes him feel powerful and rich and important. Even though he's about to walk into a place where he is, once again, like the Christmas party, going to be the lowest class one there, with the exception of the piano player. (laughs) (laughs) And we begin to hear it. To hear what you ask, to hear this. Once again, the sound design and music in this is so spectacular. We get this chanting, this music in this cryptic, weird, old mansion. This track is called Backwards Priests. It is a Romanian Orthodox divine liturgy played backwards, which is super cool. So it is literally Backwards Priests. I had a feeling it was played backwards. The Twin Peaks fans out there, we, we know backwards, you know, audio when we hear it. Dr. Bill gives the password at the gate. He's all like, I assume you want the password. That would be really good, yeah. That'd be nice, sir. And he's like, Fidelio. He (laughs) leans forward, just deliver it. That's the password, sir. And then he puts on his mask, which is also like, way to give yourself away, dude. Uh, You're arriving in a taxi to this like clearly limousine-only mansion party, and you don't step out of it with your mask on. You're showing your face to the surveillance cameras, to the staff. Like, what do you think is going to happen? But he gets into this party, and he is late for some sort of sex orgy ritual. Another thing that probably makes him stand out, because everybody's already gathered around yeah. this ritual space, and he just kind of just enters kind of walking it. in, like, hey, guys, what you doing? What's going on in here? Oh, yeah. got a little, got some kind of red cloak. Nice. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, so there's a man in a red cloak, and everybody else is wearing black cloaks, and then they are all wearing Venetian masks. Actual Venetian masks that were shipped in from Venice for Kubrick so that he could handpick each one that he wanted on which extra, which is... So Kubrick. Yep. <laughs> so everyone has their little mask on. And in the center, there is a circle of naked women that are wearing their O-ring collars. And they all have on their various forms of masks, some with feathers, one with a lot of feathers. Mm-hmm. And they do this amazing little mask kissing ritual where oh, they're so all cool. kneeling and they turn to the person next to them to deliver a mouth touch to touch kiss with their mask. We've got this master of ceremonies who's moving around the smoke in one hand and tapping his staff with the other. He goes to each woman and taps in front of her. Each woman goes and picks out a man, except for one of the women, the one with the biggest feathers on her mask, picks Dr. Bill. Oh, yeah. And she takes him aside. And I like how perceptive Feathers is, because immediately she knows that one of these things is not like the other. Dr. Bill is one of those things, and he needs to get the fuck out. Immediately asked him, what the fuck do you think you're doing here, man? You need to go. Now, if this woman's voice sounds kind of familiar to any of you Lord of the Rings fans out there, that's because a little-known fact about this movie that wasn't really revealed until 2019 is that Feathers here is being voiced by Kate Blanchett. It's not Kate Blanchett, you know, 
under the mask, obviously, but the woman who was playing Feathers had a very strong, apparently British accent, couldn't do an American accent very well. Kate Blanchett was called in after Kubrick had died. This is a thing from post-production. That was like all Leon Vitale making that happen. And apparently no one knew about that for a really long time that Kate Blanchett was voicing this random woman. Awesome. Though strangely, in addition to Kate Blanchett voicing this woman, this woman is played by a different actress than we saw playing Mandy earlier. Now, spoilers for, you know, this movie that we're spending hours talking about, but Feathers here is later revealed to be Mandy, who was the woman who OD'd at Ziegler's apartment much earlier. But at Ziegler's apartment, Mandy was played by an actress named Julianne Davis. However, for whatever reason, and among all the things I looked up about this movie, the reason for this switch was never made clear. For whatever reason, Mandy is now being portrayed by a woman named Abigail Good. But yeah, three different women went into portraying this character. Yeah, which is kind of symbolically cool since this woman is being reduced to an objectified object trope and commodity anyway. So yeah. it kind of has this vibe of, uh, all of the women in this are all the same. And also adding to that is that every single woman that we see in this film for any length of time are all skinny white redheads. <laughs> that is all that exists, apparently, in this New York City landscape, which is also very weird and adds the dreamlike thing is the lack of diversity in this. Like, I get in a way that if we're deconstructing the one percenter social elite that have problems with power and corruption and wealth and sex trafficking and all this kind of stuff, that it's going to be the old white dudes. So I get why this is a movie stuffed with white people, but at the same time, I don't think that you can actually do a fully successful deconstruction of society and elitism and power exchange and the corruption of wealth and the use of bodies without including any people of color diversity in the lineup since people of color have largely been one of the largest kind of victim pools mm. of that type of rhetoric and action. So it's very weird that there's just white people across the board, but it does seem like a specific stylized choice because it's not just white people, it's redheads. Like that's the only women so that are strange. in this. And mostly just so that we can easily move them about places and be confused. It's a kind of confusion of identity because there are also people here that have interpreted this character as possibly Nicole Kidman, just like Alice as well. So we just have redheads across the board. I'll explain why they think it's Alice here in a... Okay, yeah, all right. But so, yeah, this feathers, this amalgamation of women <laughs> comes up to him and says, you got to get out of here because your life is in grave danger. He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to enjoy this sex party because... Post-ritual, this whole thing has just devolved into a bacchanal orgy of different people sprawled out across the rooms, most of them still in their cloaks and their masks, fucking the naked women who are still in their masks and their O-ring collars, and everybody's having this, like, grand old time. It's odd, actually. The more and more I watch this, the more tame it all came off as, quite honestly, because there's... Yeah, there's some fucking going on, but the vast majority of people at this party are just standing off to the side in their robe and mask, just watching a couple of people fuck a little bit here and there. And this is where infamously 
after Kubrick had passed away during post-production, they had to add digital figures into the scenes in order to secure an R rating. The version that I watched did not have it. If you watch this movie on Hulu, it still has those figures on there. And when you look at what they're blocking, it's actually kind of laughable. In one shot, what they're blocking are two women on a table who would appear to be doing, you know, 69ing or, you know, oral pleasure on each other, but they both have their masks on. So they're not. It's a performance. It's a simulacrum. Also, don't say oral pleasure. <laughs> oral what? No? Come on. Other people can. You just can't. Oh, for God's sakes. Yeah, everything is kind of tame and performative and ritualistic. There's a lot of people that are just hanging around, especially the one guy that's sitting at the table that these two women are on just has his elbow propped up on the table, his chin on his hand. He's looking kind of bored, even through the mask. But we've all been there, right? Like, you see enough people have sex and it's just like, whatever. If you're going to argue that this is all a dream for Bill, I mean, yeah, because... What the fuck kind of orgy is this? Now, I haven't really been to that many orgies in my time. You know, I, I get the minimum in per year that I can. London, you've been to a few, right? Okay, so I've been to, a, I've actually been to things exactly like this. All right. Not in a cultish Illuminati. Well, actually, I'll, I'll talk about why this is not the Illuminati, but okay. <laughs> not in a esoteric secret society, like dark magic ritual way. I mean... Fetishistic perverts, we like to do stuff like this all the time. This sure. is just fun. You know, you invite a bunch of friends over. Maybe you're like, okay, we're going to have a masquerade theme this time. I've actually been to Eyes Wide Shut themed well, dungeon yeah, parties where everybody that. comes, you know, in the mask and the robe and stuff. And yeah, you like, you hang around. The people want to get fucked, get fucked. You watch them. And it's, it's fine. It's chill. You know, it's like mm -hmm. whatever. It's certainly not the most extravagant situation to be in because what they're doing here is pretty vanilla sex other than the fact that there's a fun cosplay you know yeah. like masquerade venetian ball <laughs> cosplay element to it that makes it fun and the house in which they're doing it that makes it fun too but yeah this is pretty tame but it's performative and it can be a good time so this is not actually out of the usual of just like a regular casual dungeon party mm -hmm. like cosplay afternoon but here, what also is happening is that we've got this music that is changing from the backwards priest chant into a track called Migration. And the original track of this had a recitation of the Bhavad Gita in it that was later taken out for the final print. Yeah, I read about that. They were kind of, they felt that may have been a little offensive to, you know, members of the Hindu faith. And I think that's justified. Yeah, and we're also filming this at the interior. So the exterior was the Rothschild Mansion. Right. The interior is Elvedon Hall, which is a private residence built in the style of an Indian palace. And so those two things combined, we have this very tantric, oh. quote-unquote, orient <laughs> obsession and appropriation vibe going on. It wasn't on. just, I read about this place. This wasn't just built in the style of Indian palace. It was built by an actual member of the Indian royalty who wanted to ingratiate himself to the English aristocracy. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Go for it. So, so that's what this place is. We have, yeah, we have these vibes. And so... We do get this feeling of this tantric, quote-unquote, orient obsession and appropriation into Western occult magic practices. And this is not because these were Eastern practices. It's because Western occultism became really fascinated with the, quote-unquote, orient and created these, quote-unquote, secret orders 
that integrated a lot of what they saw as Eastern influences and practices. Because one of the questions is like, okay, who might this cult be? And what kind of cultish stuff are they pulling from? Before we get into that, we'll finish off the scene, as it were. Okay. So he's walking around. He's watching all these people fucking get down. And then he gets kind of interrupted again. The woman comes back. It's like, we really need to get you out Seriously, of here. Seriously, bro. Get the fuck out. Yeah. But no, intercepted by some dudes in masks that bring him back into the creepy ritual hall. So somehow, either they have more dudes in cloaks or he interrupted everybody's fun sex party reindeer games or whatever by making them all retreat back into main ritual room because now everybody's back in their little cloaks in the ritual room with the masks and we get all of these really great insert shots of just close-ups of groups of people in masks silently staring at the camera and it's so great and <laughs> creepy because we're being watched but we don't really know by who it's all just whatever and they tell him yeah you have to take take off your mask and in the book, the book has my favorite line of the whole thing here, where they confront him, much like they do here, ask for the password to the house, he doesn't have it, blah, blah, blah. And he says, like, no, I am not taking off my mask, which in the Austrian television version of this is hilarious because the mask is like just a Lone Ranger mask. So you're like, <laughs> you're covering an eighth of your face, dude. You could take off your mask and not lose much. But he says, if any of you gentlemen should feel his honor stained by my appearance here, I'm quite ready to give him satisfaction in the usual way. Oh, this is not the crowd to say that to, man. So what is the usual way? Because my mind immediately goes to sex stuff. Contextually, in the novella, he would be referring to a duel, be it um, through sword or turn and draw pistols and all that thing. But all the same, dude, you have to know these people are just some kinky shit just telling people, I will satisfy you in the usual way. In the usual way. way. Like, Oh, we kind of get that a little bit here, too, because they have him strip. They have him take off his mask to show this entire room of masked people who he is and his identity. So he's being seen. And then they tell him, remove all of your clothes. And so there's the chance that it's just the social shaming through vulnerability and exposure and nakedness. But it also feels a little bit like... What are what are you gonna do to him once yep. he gets all of his clothes? Where are we going off? Like with inquiring this? minds wanna know. Like, well, let's see this through. <laughs> but before we can see any of his vulnerable unveiling, feathers from the balcony above shows up and it's like, stop! Really dramatically, and everybody turns to her and she's up there on the balcony. She's like, I will take his place. And they're like, Are you sure you want to take his place? Do you know what this means? Yes, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. And then a dude in a plague mask, so one of the Venetian masks, the plague doctor, comes like the little harbinger of death to cart her away. And so they tell him, she spared your life, might as well leave now. Mm-hmm. Here's where the Fidelio opera actually comes in a little bit more, is oh, that oh. in Fidelio, the woman does disguise herself to get into a secret clandestine political prison to save her husband. And when she appears, she appears in disguise above him, and it's said, like an angel. So we have this woman who is this redheaded woman who appears masked with this halo of feathers on the balcony. So it's kind of got those vibes of appearing like this very masquerade version of the angel on the balcony above that is saving and sacrificing herself for him. And the end of the opera is this song that translates to who has got a good wife, because <laughs> it's all about fulfilling the best upholdance of marital duty and bliss or whatever. Oh, yeah. That's and so there are people here that 
question in some way is this possibly Alice slash Nicole Kidman that is this redheaded woman who is the wife from Fidelio that's coming to save him? Not necessarily in this 100%, well, I guess in very limited interpretations, maybe it just this is what she's doing at night. She snuck out and she's having these sex orgies. This also might be part of the dream world where since this woman is just all of these women, is there a difference between yeah. his wife and the Manhattan prostitute and the snow blow addicted prostitute and Kate Blanchett? Like, I don't know. All of the women that are coming together here <laughs> are they just this dreamlike stand-in. So if this is more of his subliminal dream conscious, I'm not saying this film is all a dream. This film is not saying it's all a dream either. But what this film is saying throughout, and will really definitively say later, is that the difference between reality and dreams doesn't really make a difference for the purpose of our narrative. That we are going through a very dream story, dream-like tale that makes sense on a subliminal level and you're not really supposed to unpick the reality from the dream so this woman might just be the stand-in for his wife on kind of a subliminal whatever level we're also going to get home in a second and his wife is going to tell him about a dream she had and she is dreaming of this party is this her dream or is it somehow convalescing, right? We can't really say definitively for sure, nor does this movie really want us to. So where you fall on the scale of reality and dreams is up to you. But having Alice be a slight interpretive participant in this ambiguous amalgamation of a redheaded woman who is sacrificing herself mm -hmm. for this guy in a Fidelio-like way is, you know, the point i suppose well that was a lot to tell me yeah and i have even more to tell you about this cult you're about to talk about the cult yeah i am about to talk about the cult all right then i request a water break of course you do because you're weak weak but no this episode actually is getting pretty long and we are not yet through so how about we all take a little break and we will reconvene for part two so we will not say for it out here because the episode is not yet done. Thus, if you'd like to hear me dazzle Benji with the occult mysteries of the secret societies and cults that this movie and the novella are drawing from, as well as hear Benji talk about how this scene compares to the ritual sex orgies in the novella, as well as how this whole film pans out in the Dark Night of the Soul part two that our Dr. Bill is going to go on. We've got a little Thanatos coming in. We still have my epic tease of how this is all just a rehashing of Thus Spoke Zarathustra ahead. So lots more to go. Thus, yeah, let's all get some water and we will see you in part two. We meet again Don't know where don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. We'll meet again, don't know when, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Yeah.
happened to be a doctor.